Let's take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 47. I've entered the process of grieving, finishing this book. I've been, it's been such a part of my life and your life for some time, if you'll believe that it's been almost three years that we have been walking through this first book, this book of foundations of beginnings, and now we're to chapter 47. These last few chapters uh, provide a bit of a wrap-up for us and a setup. Remember, the first audience would have been the Israelites on the cusp of taking the promised land. They've been rescued out of Egypt under Moses and now are heading back uh, to the promised land. And so this book is preparing them uh, for their journey to give them their identity, their understanding of the past. It's interesting, the climax of the book really, uh, you might say chapter 45 with Judah's great speech that indicates that the brothers had indeed changed that gospel transformation that we witness in what he says and his repentance. But then when Joseph reveals himself, maybe that would be the dramatic highlight in chapter 46. 47 through 50 brings us some loose ends that need to be tied up and situations that need to be set up. It kind of reminds me of the last Lord of the Rings movie. It's over three hours long, even in the, in the extended version. And the whole thing is built up for three movies to do what? Drop the ring into Mordor. And once it gets dropped in Mordor, you think it's over, but there's an hour and ten minutes left still in the movie. And that's kind of where we are in Genesis. We still have, and it's interesting, every bit of that, because it tells us some of the reasons for what unfolds in the rest of the Bible. Um, and that's what we have for us in chapter 47, 48, 49, and 50. Where we are exactly now, you recall that Jacob and Joseph had been reunited. Now Jacob and his sons and all his household have moved from Canaan to Egypt, and they're in the north of Egypt, the so-called lowlands of Egypt, north of where Pharaoh would have lived by some miles. It's in a foothill-type region called Goshen, and that's where they're holding up so they can have their official introduction with Pharaoh as they enter Egypt to be saved from this ravaging famine that had been going on for some time and still had several years left. It's because Pharaoh loved Joseph that he showed such favor to Israel, Jacob, and his family. Pharaoh promised them their own land inside of the kingdom of Egypt. In fact, they would get more favor than the average Egyptian citizen as a result of this relationship. So here now, God's holy word, Genesis chapter 47. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen, 
And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. Joseph answered, Give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of, our li- of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as for food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants of Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. They gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. 
And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before your holy word with expectation that we will be edified, encouraged, and directed. Please give us understanding of this chapter of Genesis so that we might love you more, trust you more, and practice more obedience in our lives. Your grace is so evident on every page of the Bible and in every aspect of our lives. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word and in the person of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Every election cycle, there is a a certain optimism that you gather that possibly getting the right people into the right offices or places might mean true change. You see that now with all these signs for school boards. Soon those signs will be replaced, and we get to look forward to a whole year of new signs leading towards the national elections. I'm sure we all cannot wait for that season. Now, by all means, Christians should participate in local democratic processes. It's a privilege to have that opportunity for sure. At the same time, however, we should remember that Scripture is quite clear and timeless on this teaching. There is a great folly placing our trust in human beings whose hearts are at root treacherous, every last one of us. says in the Psalms, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes, written by King David himself. Psalm 146, do not trust in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. And Jeremiah the prophet spoke for God as his mouthpiece when Judah was falling to a foreign power. Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert, it will not see when prosperity comes." As Genesis now moves to a close, we find Israel in a most unlikely position. Seventy total in the household of Jacob. Every last person related to Jacob, they find themselves now in Egypt, in a plush place in Egypt. They are experiencing security and provision and comfort that most of the region doesn't even know. They're in this place of, you might say, contentment, yet the patriarch Jacob vocalizes something at the last part of the passage I just read that all of us must realize and believe no matter whether we are in prosperity or in poverty. And simply put, the chapter summarized, at least the lesson we gained from Jacob, despite all that security that they had realized, all the blessings that this world can seem to provide, the people of God should only put their hope in the Lord. Verse 29, you'll see, after all this explanation of 
the transference from Canaan into Egypt and the building up of Egypt, the building up of Pharaoh, the prosperity that would come to the whole of Egypt as a result of all of this. And here Israel's in this favored spot in the midst of Egypt. And in verse 29, the aged Jacob reaches to his son Joseph and says, Promise me, deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. Now, he didn't mean to say that he thought his soul was tied to where his body would be buried. Burial is a profession of faith in something else, and that's what we have here with Jacob. He wants Joseph to remember and all his household to remember the promises of God to enter a promised land, that it wasn't going to be there in Egypt that they found their end. This is only the beginning of what God was going to do. And as a profession of faith, make sure you bury my body back where we have a grave. That may be all we own there, but put me in the same grave as my father's. Jacob came to know and believe that the promises of earth and men are empty, even in all the blessings they now were enjoying in Egypt, and that his only hope, our only hope, must be in the Lord and his promises. So as we walk through this passage, remind yourself of whatever you may be experiencing, the blessings you may have, the difficulties you may have, your hope is ultimately in the Lord and his provisions. That will help you see everything you're going through, whether it be good or bad, through the lens of God's providence and his provision and his promise for you in the future. And that your values and your perspective, your choices, your actions would be guided by that hope your hope being in the Lord, not in what happens with mankind, ever-changing man, ever-changing society, ever-changing culture. Let's look at the passage together in three sections. You'll notice I have it there on the outline for you. Verses 1 through 6 are a display of God's special favor upon Israel in a time where very few people experience such favor. Then verse 7 to 26, that's the bulk of the passage. This is how God's people, through Joseph, have become a blessing not only to themselves but to the world. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. And then, as a result, Pharaoh grows in his power and his authority. Egypt grows. Then verse 27 down to verse 29. These verses end the chapter with a reminder through the words of Jacob that the people of God must stay focused on God's promises to the end. God's promises are the end all. What they result in, that's what we look forward to. That's what we live for. Not immediate circumstances, whether they be circumstances of poverty or circumstances of prosperity. Now, let's look at the first verses and see the special favor of God in moving uh, Israel, the 70 people that make up the household of Jacob, down from Canaan into Pharaoh's land, Egypt. Verse 1, Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers, they're in Goshen. Now, if you can think of your map, Goshen is just on the west of the Sinai Peninsula in what's called Lower Egypt. It's a fertile region. Uh, even in times of famine, there was still enough to graze livestock. And it was an area that served as a buffer between Egypt and what was to the north and Canaan and so forth. And it was a bit of a trouble spot for Egypt because the Egyptians did not like shepherding or tending the flocks, though it was a necessary task. Nomadic tribes would come through that place from time to time and make it difficult, making it a security risk for Egypt. They had just expelled some such squatters in that land, and it was a great time to have someone like 
Jacob and his family take up that area. And so they settled in Goshen as part of a a predetermined agreement, but now it was being formalized. And so you remember Joseph told his brothers, hey, when he asks you what you do, tell him you're shepherds. Joseph knew how this would unfold just as we see it happening. Remember, Egypt was like the breadbasket of the ancient Near East. They had a low view of shepherding and keeping livestock. They loved the view of their growing the wheat and the corn and the crops. All of this plays into what happens next. Verse 3, the brothers come in and talk to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, just as Joseph told them, what is your occupation? They said, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. We've come to sojourn in the land. There's no pasture for servants' flocks. So they weren't coming to take over the city of Pharaoh, Thebes, which would have been south there. They were there just to simply survive while the famine was going on. They had lots of herds to keep. So Pharaoh says to them, you can take the land of Goshen. This is perfect for them and perfect for Egypt. Pharaoh says to Joseph in verse 5, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle them. Settle them in Goshen. And by the way, if they can keep livestock, have them keep mine. This is working perfectly for Pharaoh, and it works perfectly for Israel. Even in a terrible situation worldwide, God grants this bit of an oasis called Goshen for his people. Various Christian organizations will call themselves Goshen, and usually what they mean by this is it's a, it's a respite from the difficulties of the world. That's what Goshen tends to symbolize. And here in the midst of hardship and famine, God provides a place for His people to gain some relief. God's special favor for His people, even in the midst of terrible circumstances, is a recurring theme in the Bible, and it's a recurring theme in church history, and it's a recurring theme in our lives if we're honest about it. The people of God find a sense of peace even in a terrible situation. That's a hallmark of God's presence with us. It's unique to Christians, unique to His people. Even in the places where the the worst persecution is reported, Christians there speak of these beautiful periods or epochs in time where it lets off and they recognize and sense through community with each other the presence of Christ amidst, in, in their midst, a Goshen of sorts. You know, the church gathered for worship like we do on the Lord's Day. I know we can do this with such ease in our country. Praise God for that. But it still should be for you a bit of a respite, a bit of a Goshen, a time away from what's normal in the life that we live, a time of something different, something that transcends the world around us. shouldn't be just like the world around us. We should sense that we're in the presence of God with His people, like a Goshen to us. The church communal, not just when we gather for worship, but when we have fellowship with other believers whose hope is in the Lord, that's also a bit of a respite for us. We should have it more than just on the Lord's Day. It should be opportunities for fellowship that we have with each other. The church communal, in this sense, should be an oasis for us as we, in effect, sojourn in this life. Now, I want you to look at the bigger section of the text in the middle, starting at verse 7. And you have here the blessing that Jacob bestows on Pharaoh, which should shock us if we really can imagine the decorum here. And then an explanation, a historical explanation of how Egypt grew in power under Joseph's leadership. 
and we'll see how this unfolds, which, by the way, by the time of Moses, will be necessary information for the Israelites. They'll, they'll understand better the world they're living in, and it helps us understand how things unfold as well. But look at verse 7, what happens. We don't want to lose the shock value of what occurs. Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him up. He was so aged he could barely stand on his own at this point. And Pharaoh looks at him and he's shocked at how old and aged he is. But before anything can occur, Jacob pronounces a blessing. Amadi wrote a book about the symbolism here, and he says, the narrative sequence here is quite startling. Jacob, though a sojourner and a father of a small band of 70, he takes the initiative and blesses Pharaoh before Pharaoh even speaks to him. And Pharaoh's response to not seeing Jacob fall before him, but rather seeing this aged man, as old as he's ever seen a person, standing before him. And Pharaoh can't help saying, how old are you? That's essentially what we have. How many are the days of the years of your life? Now, he doesn't reprimand Jacob for standing there. Instead, he's amazed by the agedness. He must be in some way blessed of the gods to be this old. 110 would be about as old as the Egyptians would acknowledge people of having lived at this time. And now he's 100. What do you think he looked like? He looked like a 130-year-old man. That's what he looked like. I believe that the patriarchs were given supernatural long lives. After the time of Noah, you don't find long lifespans except in the patriarchs. Pharaoh took note of this. Jacob, verse 9, says to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning, so not only, it's not like he's been sitting in comfort, he's been sojourning, wandering the whole time, are 130 years. And look at how Jacob categorizes these 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Pharaoh has to be thinking, who calls 130 years? Few. But then he goes on. They have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers. My grandfather lived to be 175. My father lived to be 180. I'm a mere 130. Pharaoh had to be shocked by this. A shepherd and a sojourner given so many years? This had to be a mark of God's favor. And by pointing to the greater longevity of his ancestors, Jacob is increasing for Pharaoh the mystique of his holy family and the family of Joseph. Age was respected in antiquity, and longevity was seen as a divine blessing. Clearly, Pharaoh sees it as this. And this would increase the twofold blessing that Jacob speaks on Pharaoh. Verse 10, the second time you see Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. It doesn't record any interchange, just Jacob going into the presence as though he's the greater speaking to the lesser. What do you think the words of the, those two blessings would have been? We don't know. We do know that Jacob had some other times where he gave blessings. He could have said in this moment, speaking to a, a pagan king, long live the king, something like that. That would be the common thing you would say. But I suspect that Jacob might have mentioned elements of the Abrahamic covenant when he spoke these blessings. Maybe something like, may Yahweh bless you who have blessed his people. May he give you many days to rule well. Yahweh blesses those who bless Joseph's family, Jacob might have said. And Yahweh also curses those who curse us. You have blessed us 
So may he bless you and Egypt greatly. He speaks a word of blessing to Pharaoh. Two nations essentially meeting in these two people. As Egypt blessed Israel with this respite, with this Goshen, so Israel blesses Egypt with the power of God's covenant to be a blessing to the nations now. Through Egypt, God provides a safe place for Israel to incubate and multiply into the great nation they will become. This is this blessing. But also, Egypt survives this famine because of God's blessing. And many, many thousands of people are saved. Eventually, through Israel, the Messiah, the Christ, would come and be the blessing to the nations that Abraham foresaw when God first spoke to him. Verse 11, Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them the possession of the land of Egypt, the best of the land. So in that spot, for the next several hundred years, so Joseph is about 1800 B.C. Moses is 1450 B.C., almost 400 years now between Joseph and Jacob's family, 70 in Goshen, to 2 million by the time of the Exodus. The blessing of God upon Israel, but the blessing of God upon Egypt too, a blessing to Pharaoh was Jacob and his family. In fact, what we see unfold here is the program that unfolds to build up Egypt. Now, you have to take off your Western, modern, capitalistic, democratic thinking to appreciate why Moses, who writes this, sees what is written here about the rise of the power of Egypt as a good thing. Because in antiquity, if there's a famine, People just died, and that was what it was. There was no surviving it. There was no welfare to be provided. So the fact that in this case, many thousands survived is viewed by Moses as the greater good of what happens. We shouldn't sit and analyze the political theory too much here. That's a modern thing we might do. Look at yourself, live in 1800 B.C. in what normally would happen. There was no hope for the common person. But through Joseph's planning and preparation, they were able to live. Let's see how this unfolds and appreciate it just a little more. Joseph settles his brothers, but then we come to verse 13, and we see what's happening. The years continue to go on with the famine. Israel settled well in Goshen, taking care of things. They're taken care of. But the general populace is still in trouble here, and Joseph's still in charge. No food, and the people spent all their money buying the grain that was saved up, and they were all out of their money. Verse 15, when the money was all spent in the land of Canaan, the Egyptians came to Joseph. Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money's gone. Joseph said, you can trade your livestock then. And they're happy to do it. They weren't expecting it to be a handout. That's fine. If we have something we could, to live, we'll do that. And they do that. Then the next year comes by. Now they got nothing left, really. And the famine keeps going on. They keep coming to Joseph. They came to him the following year and said to him, our money's all spent. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Joseph said, give yourselves then. Make yourself servants of Pharaoh, and in return, essentially what he's saying is, Pharaoh will take care of you. Only the land of the priest he did not buy kept that land for, for them because of an agreement with Pharaoh. Verse 23, Joseph says to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh, and now here's some seed. Sow the land. Survive. And when you harvest, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. This is descriptive. So again, in Moses' day, the Israelites who are leaving Egypt would understand their past and how things had developed to that point. But at the time, it's seen as a great salvation 
of people who would have died otherwise. He speaks of the taxation plan and so forth. Basically, the citizens of Egypt, who like so many did in antiquity and so many in the world today, still make themselves tenant farmers, indentured servants to Pharaoh in order to survive. Now, from Joseph's perspective, he knows that this means in return, Pharaoh is responsible to make sure they survive. That's what he means in verse 23. Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Here's seed for you. Go sow the land. This will begin a relationship that will hold you secure through this. Von Rad, the Old Testament commentator, gives some good caution here as we make sure we get the, keep the main thing the main thing. He says the modern interpreter must resist as much as possible the question of the extent to which Joseph's measures stand the test of modern opinion. The ancient narrator is honestly amazed and wants the reader also to be amazed at the way an expedient solution was found to save people from a gigantic catastrophe. So the actions have to be judged in the context of their ancient Near Eastern world and the realities that face people in a real famine. In fact, verse 25 is where we gain a real value judgment of the actions taken because the people respond. The people say, and they said, verse 25, to Joseph, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants of Pharaoh. This is our lot. This is fine. We would have died, but we haven't because of you, and there's some security going forward. And Joseph made it a statue going forward that this will be the relationship. They'll be provided for. They'll have the seed they need, and they'll have to tax. They'll give a tax of 20%, which, by the way, ain't bad. Think about it. Don't think about it. Don't think about how much taxes you're paying. It's more than 20%. For the vast majority. Just all the ways in which you're paying, this is a simple, you might call, flat tax that they approach, that's approached here. What we gather from this section is the great blessing that Joseph has been to Egypt, the great blessing that Jacob has been to Pharaoh, the blessing of all of this through a famine period where the people of God are used by God to bring blessing. And in a very general application, we should recognize, especially in such an adversarial age that we live in, that in general, the people of God, we should be a blessing to the place we live, to the city we live in, the state we live in, the country we live in. Not at expense of God's glory or His obedience, but in every way we can, we should do our best to better the place we are living in. Sometimes that will be confrontationally. But in many ways to be productive, fruitful, law-abiding citizens. Craig Keener says about this section of Genesis, perhaps it is especially important for us to recognize that blessing Pharaoh is something God wanted Jacob to do. Jacob is now fulfilling his divinely appointed role. The nations are blessed in Abraham and his seed, and Jacob, like his son Joseph, becomes a conduit of God's blessing to Egypt. Sometimes Christians see our role in the larger culture as adversarial, sometimes because of conflicts forced upon us. But ultimately, we must seek to be a blessing to the cultures where God has placed us. Finally, I want you to notice the last section of, these, of this chapter, chapter 47. And we see in the words, in the desired actions of Jacob, a little bit more of the truth of the perspective God's people should have. He viewed himself as a sojourner 
on this earth as a pilgrim longing for God's fulfilled promises, ones that he would never see bodily himself, much like his grandfather Abraham would not see, much like his father Isaac would not see. It says in verse 27, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. Settled. They were there. There was a certain respite now. They gained possessions in it. They were fruitful, fruitful and multiplied greatly. That's an understatement. To grow from 70 to 2 million at that time of the world's history. In 400 years, God's hand of blessings upon them. Many reasons to feel contented. Verse 28, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 more years, from 130 to 47. I want you to think about Jacob's life from the time he got to Egypt. Things really changed for Jacob. He was reunited with his beloved son, Joseph, who is now the prime minister of the most powerful country on the earth. Imagine the pride as a father seeing your son in this capacity, saving thousands and thousands of people. Jacob's fractured family was reunited and rescued from sure death by famine. Jacob and his family relocated at Pharaoh's expense to Egypt for safety and for provisions and for a future. While the Egyptian citizenry sold themselves as indentured servants to Pharaoh, Jacob and family were given their own land. Only the priests had their own land, which is an interesting picture perhaps, that Israel will become a kingdom of priests. In the midst of widespread hardship in the region, Jacob and family lived in relative comfort and were set up for years. What more could you want as a father at this stage of your life, all of you been through, to know that your progeny would be set up for comfort? Now, what does he say? Don't ruin this, Joseph. Keep this going. This is great. That's not what he says. As the end of his days drew near, look at verse 29. He called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, Put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. It's weird to us, but it, it had to do with uh, the most intimate oath one could make, close to the reproductive organ, saying that our future, our family, what's most important to us, swear on this basis and on the future of this. Strange for us, but it makes sense with that imagery. Do not bury me in Egypt. Again, he, he's not worried where his soul will go. But he wants to let everyone know that God still has a future for his people. The promise to Abraham has not yet been realized. It stands off in the promised land, not here in Egypt. He wants everyone after him in his family to always look to the future, to what God promises. Put your hope in the Lord, not in Pharaoh, not in Egypt, not in the, the, the present comforts they were enjoying, the security they felt. That could come and that can go in this life. But the promise of God is tied up with the land. Let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. That whole act of burial would be a profession of faith and a belief in God's promises that his ultimate hope was realized in God. Joseph said, I'll do as you've said. And you could just see Jacob, no, swear to me that you'll do this. And he swore to him. Israel bowed upon the head of his bed. It's interesting, his bed could be staff. It's hard to know the translation staff and bed are similar. You know, the seed in the land are probably the two most celebrated elements in the Abrahamic promise when you think about it. You remember Abraham longed for the land of peace to ultimately settle in. Isaac longed for this land of peace 
to settle in on his own, this promised land that God had told him of. Now, Jacob here, having fled from Egypt or to Egypt for a time, he wants to have his body buried in the promised land. Now, remember this, that the promised land to these people who never would see it physically, it was always to them, Abraham especially, a picture of God's ultimate provision of true peace in presence with him for the people of God finally. Peace from their battle with sin. Peace from the toil of sojourning on this broken earth for so long. The unrest that is constantly, constantly defining them in their existence. Peace from the ravages of the fall. Peace from the war that they waged themselves with God and with each other in their sin. It was never really the ultimate promised land picture about a piece of dirt in Canaan. We see this as the New Testament unfolds. The land promise was ultimately about looking forward to God's new creation. In essence, Jacob is making a profession about the ultimate resurrection that God promises his people. That's what every funeral should be. Canaan represented God's promise, looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. That's what Jacob is essentially saying. He didn't want to have his body interred in Egypt. He wanted to be back to the place of promise as a reminder of God's commitment to deliver his people to the ultimate promised land. Yes, they would realize the promised land under Moses and Joshua, but they would soon realize that there's more to it than just this land. There's something greater that they look forward to. In fact, when you get to the New Testament, the New Testament puts a different shade on the land promises. And you come to Hebrews that interprets this era we've been studying. The author of Hebrews says, talking of Abraham, by faith he went to live in the land of promise. Remember, he leaves Ur, goes to the land of promise. As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, never realized any real blessings of that land. Heirs with him, Isaac and Jacob. For he, Abraham, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Is he talking about earth there? He's talking about the ultimate new heavens and the new earth. That's what drove Abraham. It was pictured in Canaan, and Canaan is a sign of the thing that was real. It signified what could be ultimate. This is the hope that Jacob has in the Lord, that you should have too. This is really what drives you. It's not what you'll do with your life when you go to college or the job you get after it or uh, what you amass as far as wealth and stuff and family and ac- It should be what God's promise is for you for all eternity. That will then severely and drastically alter how you value those other things today for the better. And you'll actually enjoy them more when you know their place in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the hope that we have, that Christians have, that we understand. Even Abraham knew that Canaan wasn't the ultimate end of God to to God's promises. They pointed forward to the heavenly country. This is always what drives the people of God to greater or lesser degrees throughout biblical history, church history, and even now in our own lives. The glorious restoration of Israel to their land that will happen under Moses, ultimately it's a picture of what will happen through Christ leading us in the exodus out from our slavery to sin unto eternal life and all who believe. When Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 4, listen to what he says. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, 
did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Wait a minute, the heir of the world, I thought it was the heir of the land, same words. And who are the offspring of Abraham? Paul writes also earlier in Galatians, all those who have faith in Christ. They are the true sons and daughters of Abraham, the true Israel of God. So the promise is still yet to be fulfilled. It's the thing we look forward to. That's what gives us meaning in life is recognizing eternal life in all that God intends for us still to come. This is the hope that Jacob has when he grabs Joseph and says, hey, all this is great that's happening. It's amazing the securities we have. These are blessings from God, but don't let me be buried in Egypt. Let's not forget where our hope lies. That's the essence of what is being said by Jacob to Joseph. Israel's consummate inheritance is not just Canaan. It's God himself in his kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. It's the whole earth. I think this is why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit a little sliver, a land. They shall inherit the earth. We are saved in this life. We're saved at the moment of our death. We're saved as we come before God. We're saved at the final judgment. We're saved when we come to reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what we should gather, the ultimate impact of Jacob saying, don't let me be buried in Egypt. You know, we should never be too comfortable here, brothers and sisters. It's not our final home. We should look forward to the promised land. We should not get too comfortable with all our physical provisions in this life. All the stuff you have, it could fade, it could, rust could get to it, it could decay, someone could steal it. All the physical abilities you could have could be lost like that. Everything decays in this life. We should not get too connected to our stuff. We should resist wrapping our identities in our jobs and our accomplishments or the honors that people give us. This is what I love about the hymn, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah the Most. It's a, it's a view to the future, and it's really solid. Listen to the third stanza. When I tread the verge of Jordan, see the imagery? The author Williams is saying, as I'm ready to die and I verge the, tread the, the verge of Jordan, meaning to go into the promised land, you catch it? He says, when I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. I'm, dang, I'm scared about death, but, but help me not to be because I'm going to go into the promised land. Death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises. Songs of praises I will ever sing to you. That's our hope in the Lord. The definition of hope, a person or, hope is a person or thing in which expectations are centered. We are to pray and to be active and expectant in our faith, all the while making sure to place our complete hope and trust in the Lord and His promises. So much frustration, anguish, and disappointment could be remedied by hoping in God and His ultimate promises instead of man. The prophet Isaiah said, those who hope in me will not be disappointed. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, Your Word declares that it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. We see the patriarch Jacob, after a long life of many ups and downs, now fully trusting in Your promises trusting in your promises over the fickleness that he had seen in his own life and in the lives of others. He certainly, personally, let many people down in his life. 
And he himself was let down by a great many people too. And here, in this passage, he seems to finally come to the realization that only your promises, O God, are sure. Please grant to us this kind of perspective, and may it be applied to all the decisions we make about our life going forward. And help us to realize this long before we're 130 years old. It is upon your oath, your covenant, and Christ's blood that we depend for support in the whelming flood. When all around our soul gives way, through Christ, you are our only hope and stay. Amen.